0: Um, So we've been looking over the last few Sundays at what it means to be a family member, a disciple and a missionary as part of the church. And we're going to be continuing looking at that series today. But before we dive in, I've got a question for you. If the church was a piece of art, what kind of style do you think it would be in? What would it look like? What do you think? People shouting some things out. I don't know. Maybe you think it might be like pop art style with really big, like bright colours, a bit cartoony Maybe it's more like impressionist with really like soft, gentle brush strokes, or could be cubist with really like angular lines and sort of jaunty angles and things. Or maybe it's a bit like this. So I found this video online this week, um, and I think this is just a really incredible thing. I don't know if you can see it in this light, but this is a guy who creates a piece, creates art in a style called anamorphosis, which is essentially where you look at it from one angle and it looks like just nothing at all. It looks like a mess. You can't really see what it is. It's all just bits of rubbish that he's collected from the streets. But you look at it from a different perspective, and it looks like this most incredible, beautiful piece of art. And for me, this is just such a picture of the church. It's a beautiful mess. And why do I say that? Well, because within church life, we have got all kinds of things going on at the same time. You've got people who are experiencing incredible joy and rejoicing, and people who are experiencing incredible suffering. Um, People who are just kind of carrying on, life is normal, somewhere in between. You've got babies being born, you've got kids being raised, you've got families adopting, you've got people getting married, people longing to be married, people uh, facing difficulties in their marriage, you've got people facing loneliness, facing difficult diagnoses, you've got people that are caring for elderly parents, you've got all kinds of different suffering going on, you've got people celebrating birthdays and anniversaries and everything is happening at the same time. And in the middle of all of that going on, you've got sin, betrayal and anger. And at the same time, there is salvation, faithfulness and joy. And it's incredible because we see glimpses of glory amongst pain. And we see these flashes of incredible, beautiful lights amongst the world's darkness. And in the middle of all of that, we're called to do life together as a church We're called to live together in harmony. And the question that might be on your mind this morning is, well, how do we do that? If there's all these different things going on, there's all these people experiencing all these different um, points in life, how do we live together in harmony? Well, today, we're going to have a look together at a passage from Romans that's going to help us to unpack some practical things that we can do to live together in harmony. Now, Romans is a book in the New Testament, and it's actually a letter that was written by Paul to churches, Christian churches in Rome. And those churches were made up of Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, who were people who were from very, very different backgrounds, And so Paul wrote this letter with a focus on addressing some of the issues that were coming up because of the differences between these people who were part of these churches. So today we're going to look at chapter 12. And the second half of this chapter is really, really practical. And it's all built around this theme of unity. So I want you to bear in mind as we're reading this that this was written to churches in Rome. Rome was and is a city very much like London. You've got people who have got incredible wealth, People who've got extreme poverty and nothing at all. And you've got people that are experiencing all those different life situations that I just talked about. And Paul is writing to these Christians, these people who have been reconciled to God and have been reconciled to each other. So let's have a look together. We're going to read from Romans 12, uh, starting at verse 9, if I can open my Bible one-handed, which is a technique in itself. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So, here what Paul's doing is he's give, giving a series of commands and he's describing the marks of Christian community this is what we should look like as a body of believers as a church and those commands that he gives are really really easy to read out quickly much harder for us to live out in reality and even then we're you know we're not going to get it right all the time when we try when we are filled with the Holy Spirit and we are walking in love we're still going to get things wrong because we're human. We're not perfect. We're all learning and growing in this together. But that shouldn't stop us from stepping out in obedience in these things. There was loads packed, up, packed in to what I just read out. We could do an entire series just on that passage. Um, but today we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at two verses in particular. We're going to look at verse 15 and 16, which say, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. And what we see in this sentence is that Paul has taken these two hugely different scenarios, rejoicing and weeping, and he's put them together in this sentence, basically to summarise the full spectrum of different emotions that we can experience as people. And essentially he's saying all of life is included in this command. And that as we do all of life together, as we rejoice and we weep, it leads to us living in harmony. So we're going to spend this morning unpacking this a bit more and looking at these commands and thinking really practically, how can we do this? How can we rejoice with those who rejoice? First of all, rejoicing sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? When we think about it. It means that we experience joy and great delight. And when something goes well in our lives, it's just our natural response. We can't help it. We rejoice. Um, and it's, it's a command in lots of different places in the Bible to rejoice. But what that actually looks like from person to person is probably going to look quite different depending on our personality, depending on the situation that we're in. So, for example, when I rejoice about something, generally it looks a bit quieter than when my husband rejoices about something. He would shout it from the rooftops if he could climb up onto our roof. He would be happy to do that. Whereas I'm, I'm less that kind of person. Um, so rejoicing sounds simple rejoicing with those who rejoice then surely that just means to feel joy and great gladness with other people who are also feeling joy and gladness so why do we struggle to do it then because it's not always easy is it I want you to think for a second and you don't have to answer this out loud but I want you to think about the last time that you heard somebody else's good news could be anything it could be I don't know they're moving to a new bigger house or they've got a promotion or they're having a baby or they're getting married or whatever it is, some kind of good news and you heard about it, what was your first thought when you found out? Um, Sometimes for me, my first thought, my first response to other people's rejoicing is genuinely that I'm really excited for them, and I'm right there with them in that moment. I'm so happy for them, particularly if it's been something that we've been praying for for years and we've kind of been with them on that journey, and then God breaks in miraculously and answers prayer. It's just amazing in that moment, and I'm just instantly rejoicing with them. but other times my um, my first response looks a bit more like a stroppy toddler. On the inside, if I'm being honest, it's more like me stamping my feet and saying, that's not fair. Why do they get that? Why don't I get that? When's that going to happen to me? Why can't that happen for me? And um, pridefully feeling like actually I deserve what they've received more than they do. But toddler tantrums are ridiculous. Whether they're in the middle of a supermarket for everyone to see or they're hidden inside an adult's heart, they're just as ridiculous. And we don't like to admit it, do we? But we are prone to thinking about ourselves. We get jealous, we judge, we compare. But the command to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And often we end up getting things twisted up and we get it backwards. And we end up being jealous and weeping when somebody else is rejoicing about something. Because we're thinking about ourselves. And whatever your response was to that person's good news that you were just thinking about, and it could be anything in that moment, but the command to rejoice remains. And it is a command. It's not a suggestion here. This isn't the Bible saying, oh, you know, if you're having a good day, things are going well in your life, then you should totally rejoice with those who are rejoicing. No, this is about us obeying this command, whether we feel like it or not. And commands are there in the Bible always for a reason, to it protects us and to protect other people they're for our good if you think about the ten commandments the world would look at christians for following those and say well you're just boring and they would point to god who gave them and say well you're just an irrelevant killjoy but they're there for our protection they're there for our good uh, me and tim got a new microwave the other week which is highly exciting um, and we got it out of the packet, we plugged it all in and everything, and then the, the little screen flashed up with this message saying, refer to manufacturer's instructions. Refer to manufacturer's instructions. And we thought, really? I mean, how hard can it be? It's a microwave, we've used one of these before, it'll be fine. So we ignored that, we went on, carried on using it, and then Tim found this bit of like cardboard inside it and decided that actually it'd be a great idea to take that out. Um, And he's like, yeah, I really think we should take this out. I was like, are you sure? Fairly sure that needs to stay in. No, he was confident that we were taking it out. So we took it out. It wasn't until I sat down later on and actually read the manufacturer's instructions that we realized this was the one thing that it told you in several places to not do. And ignoring those instructions could have meant that we'd completely destroyed our brand new microwave, which would have been annoying. But disobeying God's commands is infinitely, infinitely more serious than that because it's sinful Because we get hurt and other people get hurt as well. And just like the manufacturer of that microwave knew how it was meant to work, God is our creator and he knows how we were made to work. He gives us these commands out of love. So why then? Why do we disobey this command to rejoice with those who rejoice? I think it's because it costs us. It costs us in a load of different ways. And today we're just going to look at three of those different ways. Number one, it costs us our isolation. Because we actually have to be living in genuine community with people. You can't just do what you want and use your time how you want. You've got to be selfless. And for some of us, we absolutely love being around people. We really enjoy it. For others of us, we struggle with that and we find it much harder. And, you know, we struggle to get beyond like a surface level in conversation with people. We're a bit fearful, actually, if we're honest, to be known um, and to know other people. But whatever our preference is with that, the command for us is to live in community. It's good for us. And so when these, uh, when these moments happen, we should be rejoicing. We should be um, stepping out in that. Um, and it's, it's meant to feel sacrificial as well to do community with people. If no part of your life doing community feels sacrificial, it's worth taking a step back for a second and asking yourself why that is. Because... It may be that you're just doing what you want to do or you're hanging out with people who are like you or you're, you're doing things, you're prioritising yourself and you're prioritising your immediate family's needs. And marriage and family are great. They're gifts from God. But they're not just meant to be gifts for the people who are in them. They're meant to bless other people too. So it's not just that we get married or we have kids and we think, great, that's me sorted. I've got my community now. We're just going to hang out as us forever. We don't need to hang out with anyone else. no. I loved what Jenny said the other week when she spoke about what it means for us to be a church family because she said we're not just a bunch of individuals and families that get together and then go our separate ways but actually we are now one family and as one family our lives should be entwined together. We should be close enough to people that we can rejoice with them. Social media loves to sell us the lie that we can just do genuine community with people from a distance. But it's not true you can have some semblance of community from a distance but there is nothing that compensates for being close enough to tangibly actually rejoice with somebody it's not enough to tweet it's not enough to like something they've put online we need to rejoice in person sometimes genuine community no okay number two obeying this command confronts our self-centeredness the very focus of this command to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing is about someone else. It's about lifting our eyes from ourself and focusing on them. And that means also that we need to be walking closely enough with our brothers and sisters in Christ that we're not just like vaguely aware of something that might possibly be going on in their lives, but we're close enough to them that we deeply feel it as well when they're going through something. The moments that I was talking about earlier where I felt most like instantly overwhelmed with rejoicing when somebody else has had some good news about something... There are times when I've been walking with that person and I've known the journey that they've gone on. And I've seen the months or years sometimes of loss and lack and pain and waiting. And then when those moments of rejoicing come, they're just the sweetest moments because you know what's gone before and you're there with them in in that moment. But actually to do that, to walk with somebody over a long period of time... It takes commitment, it requires energy, and it it requires the sacrifice that I was talking about earlier. We actually have to not kind of always go with what our preference is. And it's really easy for us to desire to do this well. But it's actually in the small, moment-by-moment, day-by-day decisions that we make that determine what the pattern of our lives is going to look like with this. Just the other week... I've been working really long hours all week. I was working over the weekend as well. I was really tired. And I was getting ready to see some people that night. And we were arranging to have an event at our house and host a load of people the next day. I had so much to do, but I was really aware of my friend who was going through a really tough situation. And so I was texting her and I was like, oh hey, come over if you want to. And so she came over. And so I put everything that I needed to do to one side for a bit. And we just sat down and chatted and I listened to her and she cried and we'd prayed together. And it was such a privilege to be there for her in that moment. Um, And I don't share that story to be like, oh hey, look at me. i so sacrificial with my time. Because being honest, my first thought when she was like, yeah, I'm coming over, was like, oh, I've got so much to do and now I'm going to have to wait. And I'm going to have to go to bed late tonight so that I can fit it all in. But I think those, those moments are so important where we have those small day-by-day choices to be sacrificial, to, um, because they bless other people, but they bless us as well. It was a blessing for me to be able to sit with her in that time as she was just sharing what was going on. So what would it look like for me? What would it look like for each of us to do more of that, to take more of those opportunities to be selfless in those moments and make space to walk with people consistently over time? Number three, um, obeying this command challenges our faith might sound like a weird thing to say. How does somebody else's rejoicing challenge our faith? Well, it can be easy to rejoice with people when there's rejoicing in your own life. Particularly if it's directly related to the thing, the the particular joy that they're experiencing in that moment. So as an example, I would say it's probably been easier for me to celebrate people getting engaged, getting married, since I've been married, than it was when I was single and I was desiring marriage myself and it wasn't happening. Um, But in those moments when I heard about an engagement or I was going to another wedding, uh, when I was single, I could still choose to rejoice with that person who was rejoicing. And I could do that even though you know, I wasn't seeing the specific goodness of God to me in the same area that they were experiencing at that moment. Because I chose to trust that God is enough and that he's in control. And that is a test of our faith. We either believe that God is good and that he is enough or we don't. And it's worth saying that our good doesn't always look like us getting what we desire. You know, if our hope is misplaced, if it's in other people, if it's in our desires being fulfilled, if it's in anything other than Jesus, then we're only going to be disappointed. Our hope should be in Jesus alone. He is enough. And choosing to believe that he is enough enables you to rejoice with those who rejoice, whatever it is that you're facing yourself. So rejoicing with those who rejoice is a command. It's... It's going to look different from person to person. We've all got different backgrounds. We're all going to do it in a slightly different way. But that's okay. We need to learn to rejoice together because it's what we're called to do. And it's not always going to be easy. It's going to cost us in a bunch of different ways. But we are not meant to be like wet blankets when somebody else is rejoicing. We should be increasing their joy by rejoicing with them. So that is rejoicing with those who rejoice. And then the second part of verse 15 commands us to weep with those who weep. And when it comes to weeping, we face the same challenges as rejoicing. We need to be close enough in actual community with people to be able to rejoice, to weep with them. We need to confront our own self-centeredness and recognize this is about them, the person in front of me right now who's in pain, not about me. And sometimes um, actually weeping with those who weep challenges our faith too, because it raises the same questions. Is God good? Is God in control? But it's also got some unique challenges, and we're going to have a think about some of those in a moment but first of all it's really important for me to say that because we live in a fallen world suffering is inevitable we all of us will face suffering and pain in our lives at some points and I don't have time today to go into a whole theological explanation of why we suffer or to talk in detail about how the bible handles suffering other than to say that it's not an uncommon thing in the bible it's not rare and Christians are told to expect suffering to not be surprised when it comes Um, But generally, we're not great, are we, at handling suffering as people, particularly the English. We have this whole stiff upper lip thing where we can't even show our own emotion, let alone show emotion at what somebody else is feeling. How do we do that? We feel awkward when we're confronted with somebody else's pain and, and when they're weeping. It's hard to know what to do in that moment. We don't know what to say. We're scared to say the wrong thing, so we end up saying nothing. Or we try and say the right thing and end up doing more harm than good. Just put our foot in it. And weeping with those who weep is just not one of our top skills, generally, is it? And sometimes if we're honest, actually, we're just so indifferent to other people's pain, we're so busy that we don't even think to get involved. Um, But what should we do? Well, first of all, we're going to talk about four things to not say when you're helping somebody who is going through something like this. Number one, it could be worse. Don't say that. You know, your house got burgled, but hey, it could have burned to the ground. You're doing great. It might be true, but that's not going to help them in that moment. So don't say things that are dismissive of their hardships because God's not dismissive of our hardships. Number two, don't compare their sufferings to other people's or to your own. Saying things like, well, you know, you should just be grateful. You've not got it as bad as them. Not helpful. Comparing sufferings just leads to further sorrow. And also, if we're somebody who always draws the conversation back to us and our pain, again, in this moment, there's a place to talk about that, but in this moment, it is focusing on this person. It's not about us. And this isn't some kind of competition to try and prove that you've had it worse than them. And in fact, if you find yourself needing to draw the conversation constantly back to your own pain, it might be pointing to the fact that you are finding your identity in your pain rather than in Christ. And that's not how God wants us to live. Painful experiences do shape us. Yes, they do, but they don't define us. Number three, don't say, what's God teaching you through this? That's a helpful question to ask, but not too soon. Because if you ask it too soon, it just sounds like you're saying, well, you've been taught a lesson, aren't you? It doesn't sound very helpful. So wait to ask that question. There is a moment, the moment will come, but it's not straight away. Number four, don't try and explain the why. Why? We find it so uncomfortable to sit with people who are suffering, who are in pain. And I think a large reason for that is that we struggle with the fact that we're not in control of what's happening to them. And so by offering some kind of explanation, it helps us to feel like we can fix things, but we can't fix things. So we need to not try and give an explanation for stuff. Suffering's not some sort of like intellectual question that needs an answer, it's really personal. And actually sometimes a hug is the more appropriate thing than trying to offer an explanation. If a kid falls over and cuts their knee open, you don't run over to them and say, okay, here's a rundown of all the things that you shouldn't have done and and that you need to watch out for next time. No, who does that? You run over and give them a hug. You clean up their knee and you sort them out. So that's what we need to do. We need to not offer explanations. So four things to not say. What are four things that we should do then? Number one. We should show empathy. In John chapter 11, we see the story of the death of Lazarus, who was one of Jesus' closest friends. And Jesus, if you know the story, you know that Jesus raises him back to life. And Jesus knew that was going to happen. And yet when he heard about this news that his friend had died, he still wept. If you have believed the lie that emotions are bad, that we shouldn't cry about things, then you need to know the truth that Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible draws our attention to that fact. And the God who created the universe holds our tears in a bottle, Psalm 56 tells us. In James five eleven, it tells us that we serve a compassionate God, so we should be compassionate too. And we should empathise with people who are weeping. We need to learn to respond to other people's emotion in the right way because it draws us closer together as a family. So show empathy. Number two, we should listen. Rather than rushing to speak, maybe with one of those things from earlier that we shouldn't say, We need to just listen. And if we're honest, we could all probably be better listeners, couldn't we? The world teaches us that people who are quiet are somehow less than those who are always ready to jump in with something to say. But the Bible says something quite different. If you look at Proverbs, it is full of verses about watching our tongues and watching our words. And if that wasn't enough, God gave us a pretty big clue and he gave us two ears and one mouth. We need to, to do things in that way. In the book of Job, we see uh, a man who has suffered an incredible amount of loss. He's lost his kids, he's lost his health, he's lost his property. And we see in, in that book how his friends respond. And at first, they start out well. They get together, they arrange to actually go and spend time with him, and then they sit with him in silence for seven days and seven nights. And then they listen to him, which is all good so far. And then they start speaking. And that's when it starts going downhill because they say things that aren't helpful. They say things that aren't true. So we need to listen first and not say unhelpful things. Um, At the right moment, it can be helpful actually to ask people, how can I pray for you? Rather than just jumping in with an assumption about what you think they need and praying that for them. Actually ask them, how can I be praying for you? Whether you do it in that moment or not, or you take it away and do it separately, but ask. Number three, serve people. When people are suffering, actually, they're going to have practical needs that you can meet, whether it's making them a meal or sending them some flowers or dropping them a text just to let them know that you're thinking of them. Ask them what it is that they need and then fulfill that for them. Number four, go on a journey with people. People don't just need others who are going to be with them in the first few days. They need people who are going to be consistent, who are going to love them for the long haul, who are going to walk with them in the months and the years ahead. who so are going to be faithful and committed, who will take those small moment-by-moment opportunities that I was talking about earlier to be and love sacrificially, and that's really important. And actually, as we do that, as we love people, as we listen to them, as we serve them, the moment will come when we there is an opportunity that will open us for us to be able to speak into the situation and to to encourage them, to challenge them, even possibly to lovingly correct them at the right time. And some of those don'ts from earlier actually become appropriate to, to speak about in that moment. So what's God teaching you? And sharing a Bible verse in the first moment, it's always true, but it may not necessarily be the most helpful thing. So you just need to find the right time, become a trusted friend, and then those opportunities will open up. But what about if you are the person who's weeping? We've heard throughout this whole series about the importance of being in community with other people and what it looks like to to do that. And we should feel that we're able to be vulnerable with people, that we're able to be open. Not with everybody, certainly, but we should have some trusted people that we can reach out to when we're facing difficult things. But sometimes we don't, do we? And I think it's because we feel afraid to let the kind of facade of I've got everything together crumble. Or we're fearful that it's going to kind of become a one-sided friendship with somebody. And and we feel guilty about that. Or sometimes it's maybe because we we find our identity in being the one who always serves everybody else's needs. And we couldn't possibly have a need that anybody else would need to fill for us. And all of those at their core are prideful reasons. They are things that are saying yeah i'm i'm this is me i'm okay as i am i don't need anybody else's help it's it's wearing a mask it's not truthful and actually admitting our need for help requires humility it requires vulnerability and it's risky It's risky because people could say something wrong or unhelpful or they could judge us as being spiritually inferior to them or, you know, maybe we've been let down by people in the past and we don't feel like we can open up to somebody again or we've got expectations of somebody that haven't been met in the past. Well, spoiler alert, somebody will let you down again at some point in the future because, as I've said, we are human, we're not perfect, we're going to get this wrong. But if in that moment you are the person who's suffering, you need to be quick to forgive. It's important for us to have grace for each other in these moments and to be quick to forgive and choose to do that. There's been times when I felt frustrated when I've been going through something. Nobody's realised. No one's asked me. And I'm expecting them to know everything that's going on in my life without actually telling them about it. But you know what? Actually asking for help... Reaching out to somebody and saying, this is where I'm at, that is one of the greatest catalysts that there is for deepening friendships and for us growing together as a family. And you know what, your friends, these people around you, they already know that you don't have it together. It's not the great secret that the enemy would have you believe that it is. But if you don't share that with people, if you don't open up to them, they won't feel like they can talk to you either. And you'll be stuck in this constant limbo of shallow friendship, niceties and small talk forevermore, which sounds awful you're going to miss out on the gift of friendship as well that God's got for you. Proverbs seventeen seventeen says, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for adversity. Friends have got lots of different purposes but the key one that Solomon's talking about here is about companionship through hard times. Friends are God's gift to us and we, can, we don't want to miss out on this incredible gift of friendship that God's got for us. And that doesn't mean that we need to be constantly clingy or expect everyone to come running all the time whenever we ask them. But it may mean for some of us that we need to get a bit better at asking for help. And sometimes that literally means asking and saying something and asking somebody for a practical need or to hang out and you actually open up to them about what's going on in your life. Or maybe it's about asking questions of somebody wiser than you who's been through a life situation before and you want to get some, um, some time with them. I've been so grateful for my friends who have rejoiced and wept with me when those moments have come. But there's been times when I've n- been honest, I've not allowed them the opportunity to do that because I have allowed fear to get in the way. And I've been fearful of what they'll think or I fear that it's going to become the gossip or that I'm going to be judged, whether it's a big thing or a small thing, whatever it is. Sometimes I struggle to to open up. And actually, I need to repent of that in those moments, and I need to take a bold step to reach out to people and say, this is is where I'm at, this is how I'm doing. Um, Just recently, I've been struggling a bit with loneliness, and I arranged to meet up with a friend for dinner, and we were sat, even as we sat there opposite each other at this table having dinner, I was wrestling with, should I tell her about this or not? And I was just thinking I could just gloss over it and we could carry on. But if I hadn't have said anything, it would have just perpetuated this sense of isolation. I needed to get over myself, basically, <laughs> and just reach out to her and say, this is how I'm feeling, and not worry about what she would think of me, not worry that she would feel like I was accusing her of being a bad friend or anything like that. Or just be honest. And so we need to be honest. I think sometimes it can be much easier for us to be honest about our struggles once we've already worked through them or we're feeling like we're in a better place. And again, it's this same reason because we want to present this image of having it together. You know, I was really struggling with this, but now I'm fine. And the command here is to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, not weep with those who wept. It's present tense. And so we need to enable and allow people, invite them into our adversity when it's happening. And that requires us to be humble. It requires us to be vulnerable. It's such an honour for me to get to rejoice and weep with my friends. And I would hate for them to rob me of the opportunity to do that with them. It's likely that your friends feel the same about you. So we can be honest with each other. We can open up. So we should rejoice with those who rejoice. We should weep with those who weep. Whether we're feeling high, low, somewhere in the middle, we should go through all of it together. And in other words, that means that we should As it says in verse 16, we should live in harmony with one another. What does that actually mean? Harmony is about different things happening at the same time, forming a pleasing and consistent whole. That's what the definition is. Can some of us weep while others of us are rejoicing? Absolutely we can. But sometimes that is going to take some work. Paul's command in Romans 12 is not unique. He gives us the same command in Philippians 2 too. And actually somebody read, Chris read it during worship this morning. Um, this passage. It says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And again, Paul is talking here about um, community, about living in unity and living in harmony with each other. But as we read on in that bit in Philippians, which I think is coming up behind me, you can see that this mind that we're called to have was also in Christ Jesus. How does this fact then that Jesus has this same mind, help us in our pursuit of living in harmony. Because Jesus is our example. Jesus' life fully illustrates the mind that we are called to have. And his mind has its sameness with God the Father. And it's that harmony with God the Father that caused Jesus to live this life for us. Jesus didn't just practice empathy. He lived it in actual embodiment. He rejoiced. He wept. He made himself nothing. And he died on the cross for us. And because Jesus is our example for life. We should follow that example, but we can't do it in our own strength. We need the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us to change us, to transform us, to make us like Jesus. And it's the Spirit that enables us to be able to rejoice and weep with each other and to love each other. James talked last week about how we should always look for the invitation in every command that we're given. And in this command to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, we've got an incredible invitation that's open to us. The invitation is that we can trust in Jesus' death and resurrection for the payment of our sin and worship Jesus. We get the call to enter into the most incredible rejoicing ever, ever. We get invited into the rejoicing of the triune God. Now, what does that mean? It means that we are invited to participate in the joy that God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit have with each other. We get to rejoice too. If you think back to that video that I showed right at the beginning of this morning with that guy who is creating those pieces of art out of rubbish, without the transformative work of the creator of that piece of art, those little individual parts would have just been broken dirty rubbish on the street but the creator took those pieces he cleaned them up and he formed them into something whole he gave them a new purpose and identity and he formed them into something where they could play their part in something much bigger with other things that were completely different to them Is what he created perfect no it's not do some of those things that make up that whole still bear the scars of brokenness yes they do If you look at it really close up, does it look like a bit of a mess? Does it look like, how how are things working together? How does it all hold together? Yeah, but it does work. And this is what God did with us. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin and his spirit is renewing our minds to enable us to live in harmony with each other. He takes our brokenness and he turns it into something beautiful. He gives us purpose. He gives us a part to play. And this is the church. This is our family So today, whether you are rejoicing or you're weeping or you're somewhere kind of in between, there is a place here for you. And so I think God would have us take some next steps before we go home today. It can be really easy to hear something like this and think, yeah, that's great. I'm all in and then go home, have a barbecue and forget all about it. So I I think God would have us take some next steps before we leave this place today. It might be that you are going to go and sign up for being part of a community and actually do life in a deeper way with other people. Maybe you need to go and arrange to have coffee with somebody that you've been meaning to do for ages and you've just not got around to it, and you actually need to open up to them. Maybe you need to share about some kind of something that's going on in your life at the moment and invite people into your adversity. Maybe it's actually that you're rejoicing at the moment and you're a bit embarrassed to share it. You need to go and be honest with somebody about that and invite them to rejoice with you. Whatever your next step is, don't miss out on this opportunity to live in harmony with each other because it's what we were created for. This is why we're here. This is us. Um, And it's how God's created us to live. So should we stand together? I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to finish. Lord God, I thank you that you have created us to live in community with each other. I thank you that you, the church is your design, that you've placed us in this family, the church. I pray, would you forgive us of those times when we have been prideful and fearful and it's held us back from living in genuine community and being honest with each other. And Holy Spirit, I pray right now, would you help us to humble ourselves? Would you help us to step out in being obedient to this command to rejoice and weep together? Would you not let us kind of be held back by fear of what people will think or anything else? And I pray right now, Spirit, would you come and speak to each of us? about the next step that you would have us take before we leave this place today. Whatever it is, you know where we're at. You know what it is that's going on in our lives at this moment and you know the next step that we need to take. So I pray, would you come and speak to hearts right now in this moment? And would you give us the courage to not just hear you, but to actually be obedient and step out in the thing that you've said to us? In Jesus' name.